and all of his journeys and his passion and his grieving of leaving his loved ones. Thank you for Carolyn today as she speaks to us your word, your heart. May we hear it with new ears, especially during this week of Passion Week. Thank you for your love and that you love us so much that you gave your son Jesus and his blood was shed for us. Thank you for this new day we have today. Amen. Thanks, Karen. She reads that with such energy and fervor, doesn't she? Makes it come alive. We took out the first six verses because we decided nobody should have to pronounce the names in those first six verses. (laughs) So, uh, you notice how the, the, the year has a rhythm to it, doesn't it? And for many people, the rhythm revolves around sports. Maybe not for you, but for many. And I'm finding my life kind of like that now since I have grandchildren who are living here and they are involved in various sports. In fact, we have, well, I don't, I'm not going to tell you all that. Soccer, baseball, track. In, in March, then you know you're moving into track season. And that is a very familiar, uh, familiar sport to me because when my kids were in high school, they ran track. Um, our daughter, Becky, uh, was ran for Akalani's, as did our son Bob. Um, sitting at those track meets, I'm not sure who had the most energy expended, whether it was they running or I trying to yell my lungs out for them. The first, I re- you remember the, oh, remember those cameras we had? They were about this big. They sat on your shoulder. Remember those? And we, had, we, we went to a track meet watching our son run, and I started, you know, making, making the film go. And then pretty soon, when we looked at the film later, it was just all over the ground and the sky. So involved in the race that I forgot what I was doing. What? Do you see the exertion and the and the um, energy and the effort on, the, on Becky's face as she runs that race. After the first race that you run, I can't imagine why you'd ever run another one. <laughs> no? Not exhaustion, yes, but then all of the other things that go with running, shin splints and all kinds of pain. What keeps a person going? What keeps a person running the race? Well, we're talking about Paul, his travels, his running the race. So let's look again at his, this third journey that he's in the middle of. Last week, we left Paul in Ephesus, where he had been for well over two years. 
One of Paul's goals as he travels on this particular journey is not only to preach and encourage the churches that he has founded in various cities, but also to gather a collection for the church in Jerusalem, which is very needy, perhaps because of a famine that had happened a few years before, perhaps because of persecution, we're not sure. But he wanted to collect money, donations from each of these churches as a way of building solidarity so that the Jewish believers in Jerusalem would feel a sense of brotherhood and connection to the Gentile believers all through this area that Paul had traveled. So he travels through Macedonia. You see it up here. Some people think that he went as far as Illyricum, which is way over west of Macedonia. There's an allusion in one of his letters to Illyricum. Um, He arrives in Greece, where he stays for three months, probably in Corinth. And it's during those three months, it is believed, that he wrote his letter to the Romans. A very interesting letter, because it's the only letter he wrote to a church that he had not founded. In fact, he hasn't even been to Rome when he writes this letter to the Romans. Um, And he writes it to, uh, to tell them that he plans to come to see them. And in fact, he plans to go to Spain after his trip to Rome. Spoiler, spoiler alert. He does get to Rome, but not the way he thought. And he never gets to Spain. But, oh, do you see how this man, just his vision is so huge. He just wants to take the gospel of God's grace everywhere he can. So, he plans to, um, he plans now at this point to sail from Greece to Syria, from Corinth over to You see Syria over here. He plans to make this by uh, boat, which would be certainly easier than walking the whole way, right? However, he finds out that there's a plot against his life, and so he ends up going all the way back through Macedonia to Troas, which is where we find him in the story about Eutychus falling out of the window. Then he goes on to... Miletus, where is that? Right here. He goes on to Miletus, and that's where we find him when he calls for the Ephesian elders or the leaders of the Ephesian church to come and meet with him. He, he didn't want to stop in Ephesus. He knew that he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He wanted to get there um, by Pentecost, and he knows that if he stops in Ephesus, he's going to be delayed. And he also, it is thought that he realized that he might run into trouble because there have been some incidents in Ephesus where people might be plotting against him. Poor guys, people are plotting everywhere. I wonder if you noticed in this chapter the shift in pronouns. Um, in the first few verses, the author has listed a group of seven men who are part of Paul's traveling group, those unpronounceable names. And then in verse 5, he says, these men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. 
The use of we and us continues on into the next chapter. And we've seen that before. Back in chapter 16, we see the use of the pronoun us. And we'll see it again a couple chapters from now. So our author, Luke, is actually traveling with Paul. Do you know uh, what Luke's profession was? Yeah, he was a doctor. And it's thought that maybe one of the reasons he was traveling with Paul is that Paul was not well. And so he needed the attention and the, the care of a, of a physician. And it doesn't it add to the immediacy of the narrative, knowing that much of the material that Luke uh, writes about, he actually was there. Um, that story about Eutychus falling out of the window has certain details that I don't think would be there if the person who wrote it hadn't been present, like that there were a lot of lamps in the room. Um, those kinds of things are, reflect a first-person narrative. And, and I think the same thing you see in the last part of this chapter, in this, the description of the conversation with the Ephesian elders, it, there's a, a sense of, of immediacy. You can almost hear Paul's voice in those last verses as Luke writes the words that he heard. You might want to have your Bible open to this section of Acts. We're looking at the last part of chapter 20, starting with verse 18. There's something different about this address to the Ephesian elders. We've read several of Paul's sermons in the book of Acts. We've read his defense of himself to various groups, but this, this is a kind of a heartfelt discourse to a group that he has come to love and a group that loves him back. He's been with them for a long time. And within this um, dialogue or, or this monologue, we find the memory verse that we are focusing on for these weeks. And this is, you'll notice that the wording is a little bit different. This is the, uh, from the New International Version. Uh, the, the way that we're memorizing it is from the New Revised Standard. So that verse says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Finish the race. This is one of Paul's favorite metaphors. This isn't about competition. This isn't about being a better missionary than somebody else. If you ever run track, you know that success in track requires diligent training and endurance and keeping your eyes on the finish line. As you look at that kind of commitment, where does it come from? Is it persistence or is it passion? Is Paul motivated by duty as he carries out this task that God has given him of taking the gospel to the world as far as he knows it? Over and over again, he meets persecution, hostility, stonings, all kinds of terrible experiences 
Does he just kind of pick himself up by the bootstraps and say, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again? I would suggest that while persistence and duty are admirable qualities, they're probably not going to carry you to the finish line. If that's the prime motivator, I'm not sure you're going to run a great race. Doesn't this talk with the Ephesian elders sound like a lot more than duty? Look at some of the, the things he says, the language in verse 19. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. I'm very interested by that phrase, with tears. Have you ever felt so strongly about something that as you tried to communicate it, you wept? I think maybe that's the idea here. In verse 31, he again says, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Do you hear the intensity there? Never stopped, night and day, with tears. Some of the other wording, a couple times, I have not hesitated. Nothing held me back. Nothing kept me from giving you all I could give you. Where does the passion that we see in Paul come from? Last week, um, I exhorted us to get our theology straight, to, to know about the gospel so that we can live into it and then share it with other people. I talked about this verse from um, Paul's second letter to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Today, I want to balance that call, that call to, to wrap our minds around truth. Balance that with a call to kindle or maybe rekindle a flame in our hearts. How does that happen? Is it possible to live as Paul did? Not his circumstances, but his purpose and his power. In the Gospels, we're told about um, a conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. And he said to her, Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's not just pretty language. It is a powerful image of what Jesus offers us, ultimate, constant satisfaction and filling. And it's not just a pool within us. It wells up and overflows into the lives of other people. What filled that pool for Paul? What was the source of this kind of just life beyond description, beyond words. Surely the one thing that motivated him was the memory of what he had been. Memory of himself as a man driven by um, self-righteousness and pride, persecuting Christians, persecuting Jesus himself. 
until Jesus just turned him around, stopped him in his tracks, and he became a maker of Christians instead of a persecutor, a, a lover instead of a hater. Huge gratitude because of what God had done for him. And surely another profound motivator was that Paul had seen Jesus. He had seen him. Don't you think that if we have truly seen Jesus, we'll never be quite the same? But the passage before us gives us another insight into the heart of Paul. Look with me at verse 28 in which he's reminding the Ephesian elders of their responsibility for the believers under their care. He says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Which he bought with his own blood. The cross. The cross of Jesus is never very far from the center of Paul's mind. Greatest crime in all of history, and yet part of the whole purpose of God. As far as a human being is capable of grasping it, it, Paul understood the dimensions of what the cross meant. He understood that when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, his greatest agony was surely not the physical suffering that was ahead of him, as excruciating as that would be. As a matter of fact, excruciate, the word comes from the same root as crucifixion. Yes, terrible suffering ahead, physical suffering. But Paul understood that on the cross, Jesus experienced the agonizing weight of bearing the sins of the world, your sins and mine. There's a story of a British officer in World War II who was captured by the Japanese. He was taken to uh, some kind of a POW camp, and they tried to break him. They couldn't break him. They tried and tried to find a, you know, a, a place where he was weak. Finally, they discovered that this was a very fastidious man, and he was horrified by filth. And so, I hate to even say this, they buried him up to the neck in excrement, and he broke. In his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter, Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who had no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is almost too big to Get our brains around it. Maybe we can get our hearts around it. Jesus became sin. That's the great exchange. That's the greatest exchange in history, isn't it? 
Paul also understood the spiritual agony of Jesus bearing God's judgment on sin. God is a just God. He must judge sin. And so he judged it in Jesus. And you know, the wrath of God is terrible and awesome. And it all fell on the head of Jesus. Well, the horror and the beauty of the cross permeate Paul's writings all through the New Testament. And the truth that that consistently echoes through those letters is that Christ died for our sins, for us. And for Paul, that's a very personal thing. He says in Galatians, his letter to the Galatians, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Don't you hear the wonder in that? In his first letter to his young friend and protege, Timothy, he writes this. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Looks back at what he was. And he sees what Jesus has done for him. Another verse that expands on this. I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. John Stott helps me understand this. He says that the Greek word boast means to glory in, trust in, rejoice in, revel in, Live for. So you glory in the cross, trust in it, rejoice in it, revel in it, live for it. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our obsession. And so you see in that verse... Because of Jesus' death on the cross, the world itself is crucified to Paul. He's dead to the values, to the attractions of the world, and vice versa. The cross is all that matters, and everything else in the universe just kind of pales. So we look back at our memory verse, and I think we can understand it in a deeper way. I consider my life worth nothing to me. You hear that he's just all in, isn't he? Consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So here we are, week before Easter. We look with joy toward the coming of Easter for that that glorious day when Jesus burst out of that tomb. But let's not bypass the cross in our hurry to get to the resurrection. We aren't overwhelmed by the wonder, the mystery of the cross. We really won't be able to get the significance of Easter, will we? 
It's the cross that covers our sin. It's Jesus' blood that rescues us. It's a story about um, an event on November 26, 2008. A gang of terrorists stormed the Taj Mahal Palace Hotel in Mumbai, India. Um, After the event, a reporter interviewed a survivor. over 150 killed, terrible carnage. And uh, the reporter said, well, how did, how did you survive? And the guy, the guy told about these people bursting into the room with their guns firing, killing everybody in sight. He said somebody at the table where he was sitting, this is in a, um, there was a dinner going on, somebody pulled him down under the table, the survivor. And... There he was. And the reporter said, well, why do you think you weren't killed? And he said, well, I suppose because I was covered in somebody else's blood. And they took me for dead. Great metaphor for what Jesus offers us. Because he paid the penalty for our sin, because his blood covers the believer. We're, we're free to live fully into relationship with him. Don't you think that's what lit the fire in Paul? To call him grateful is an understatement. He was unendingly, eternally astounded, astounded by the grace of God that was manifested at the cross freed him from a life of self-righteousness and pride. Gave him the very presence of the living Christ in his life. And he wanted to tell every person he met about so great a gift. So how about you and me? I guess the first question is, have you received the gift of life that Jesus won for you? in his death on the cross. Don't have to earn it. Just receive the gift. And for those of us who have done that, what might you do this week that would deepen your comprehension of Jesus' sacrifice and prepare you to celebrate Easter with new, deeper joy? Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us eyes to see the cross anew. Even though we'll never be able to completely comprehend the wonder of what happened on that that instrument of torture, We thank you for what the effects are. We thank you for freeing us from the burden of sin so that we can live that abundant life that Jesus talked about. God, light the fire within us. 
Help us to live above the humdrum of this life, our grocery list, our to-do list. Help us to be captured by the grace and the love that you offer us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.